I don't suppose you got a chance to read my piece. The way you talk, of course I read it. Twice. What'd you think? I think it's the best thing I ever read. I didn't understand one word. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are finishing up the 1950 nominees with Born Yesterday, the movie that asks, what if Mr. Smith goes to Washington and Kiss Me Kate had a baby? (laughs) I was going to say that it was what if the solution to all the king's men was my fair lady. But either way, it's a wild one, y'all. It definitely has some Pygmalion overtones as well. So I didn't actually hate this movie. I wouldn't go so far. But it tried to make me hate it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There, you nailed it. Because, yeah, I'm in the exact same place where I didn't go. This is terrible. And I do think that a tremendous amount of that is on Judy Holiday, because I do think as written, her part should be just unplayable. Right. That She's so over the top stupid in this. Uh, the plot is that Judy Holiday plays the kind of mole to this, like, I don't know, terrible person played by Broderick Crawford, who played the lead in All the King's Men, playing basically... He's kind of a mobster who maybe doesn't have a mob, is sort of what I got, that he's trying to bribe congressmen, and he has a trash business. Yeah. Which is like a big mob front energy. (laughs) For sure. But it doesn't seem like it's actually a front. It definitely seems like this is, on a lot of levels, like... This is maybe our most, I bet it worked better as a play movie ever. The Wikipedia page makes a big deal about how much kind of hemming and hawing they have to do about Broderick Crawford and Judy Holliday's relationship with each other to get past the Hayes Code. And I bet all of the nature of the corruption is a lot less just sort of ambiguously weird in the stage play than it is in this. Right. Anyway, Judy Holliday's character is like so dumb she embarrasses Broderick Crawford in front of the congressman he's trying to buy. And so he gets William Holden, I'm just not bothering with any of the character names, to come in and teach her how to be a respectable lady. Really, I think the most surprising thing about this film is that you would think, and then that intellectual spark between them turns romantic. But no, it's just William Holden is so fucking hot. She's immediately like, I got to make out with this guy and decides to be smart because of that. (laughs) I mean, there's also a feeling that she doesn't actually know what to do with men other than be flirtatious or seductive yes but yeah sure that too it's weird because william holden is actually so much more appealing in this film than he is in sunset boulevard where he's essentially paid to be a gigolo yeah (laughs) and he's not that interesting he's just very kind and patient which is pretty hot Mm -hmm. especially compared to Broderick Crawford, who's like, shut up, Broad, I'm going to throw things at you and hit you. The comparison is pretty stark. Yeah, but really, I'm just saying they kiss surprisingly early. You would think it would be that, like, they have this intellectual relationship and then, like, the act three turn 
is we kiss and we got to figure out what to do about it. But it's like the second time he comes over. It's apropos of nothing. It's not like they have an especially romantic exchange. It's just like, maybe you should get glasses. Make out. And <laughs> To be fair. for Yes. And to be fair, we will get into what it looks like when Judy Holiday is wearing glasses. But it just makes the structure kind of weird because then they go on all of these Washington, D.C., like tourist trap dates where they just go to like all of the big things you go see in Washington, D.C. But she's like, gosh, I never knew the Constitution had so many words. And he's like, you know, when Congress was established, a smart man said the most beautiful thing ever. And it was this. And like, it's a very weird section of the movie that's also maybe the most effective section of the movie. Yeah, it's weird. Between this and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I realize I'm a giant fucking sucker for the presidential monuments. Because mm-hmm. this one, rather than focusing on Lincoln, focuses on Thomas Jefferson, who, like, I know at this point was a hypocritical shitbag rapist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> words are still moving. Yeah. For sure. And once she has basically any level of intellectual awakening, she can no longer stay with Broderick Crawford because she keeps kind of just going like, God, you're an idiot and an asshole. And evil. Right. Whatever you're doing seems suspect as hell. And maybe I want to read these contracts that you keep making me sign. Uh, Which... I'm not entirely sure what the reason for that is, but basically she owns more of his businesses than he does. Yeah, the Wikipedia summary explains that his lawyer has put everything in her name essentially for, like, tax dodge purposes. Mm. But one, that doesn't make any sense, and two, it is not at all very well explained within the film, because really that's just there so that when she tries to leave Broderick Crawford and Broderick Crawford's like, hey, I'm ambiguously a mobster. I will kill you. Her and William Holden go, you realize all of your money is in her name and she has all of the leverage here. You're gonna let us leave. And he goes... And they're not married yet. Right. So if she dies, I guess it refers to her parents or her dad, her mom is dead. It doesn't really make any sense and it's really just there so that he doesn't murder them in Act 3. That's fair. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, that is why that's there, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um... And they give a couple of big speeches about the nature of American democracy versus like strongman tactics and fascism that kind of map to Broderick Crawford's character, sort of. He is a shitty human being and definitely is trying to rule through violence, but it doesn't seem like he's trying to be Mussolini. It seems like he's trying to be a small time mobster, which is a different type of corruption. Right. (laughs) That's fine because William Holden delivers it well and Judy Holliday delivers the like little smart ass asides pretty good too. Um, anyway, then they go off and get married and end of film. And weirdly, this movie is better than that. <laughs> and again, it is really down to Judy Holiday because without her, this movie would fall apart. Yeah. But I will say that Broderick Crawford and William Holden are doing really good work in this. But without a solid Billy, which is the character Judy Holiday plays, this movie is nothing. This movie is irritating. It is infuriating. 
And I feel like there is maybe one other person who has ever walked the face of the earth who could play this part, and it is Marilyn Monroe. And maybe even she couldn't have. Yeah, that was absolutely the casting that like went through my head over and over again as I was watching it. Because I do think, weirdly, the thing that Judy Holliday kind of delivers the least well are the best moments of writing for the character, which are those, like, I'm so stupid, I'm actually getting at something really smart lines. The King's Fool. Right. Like you referred to Marilyn in the All About Eve episode. Right. I do think that those lines are the best written lines and Judy Holiday doesn't throw them away exactly, but they feel very similar to the way that she is playing a lot of the rest of the character. They don't sort of jump out as distinct. And I think that's actually, generally speaking, for the best, because that's not very much of the part. I do think the worst thing about this as a screenplay is that her character just doesn't make any sense. Like, no one is stupid the way her character is stupid. The way she is stupid is not really consistent and is Mm. mostly just kind of there so that William Holden can give big speeches about, like, the nature of inquiry and democracy. And she can go, wow. I do think that Judy Holliday is really putting in work to make a, like semi-consistent human being out of that yeah yeah but marilyn monroe is the ideal casting for a better written version of this movie but i don't know if she could actually kind of lend the weight i don't know it would have to be kind of an easier part and not because marilyn monroe is a bad actress as we established in the all about eve episode but because salvaging a bad part is not necessarily what she does. That's true. I think the other thing, too, that works against Marilyn and which Judy Holiday is doing so well that it made me want to tear out my eardrums for vast portions of this film is Marilyn has a very soft voice. And it is high like Judy Holiday's, but it is very gentle. And Judy Holiday's does not have that problem question mark problem and she's putting on this incredibly thick brooklyn accent in this film where she basically sounds like bernie sanders pitched up five (laughs) octaves there were times where i was not directly looking at the screen and it sounded like a baby from brooklyn was talking like a four-year-old <laughs> one of my mom's just big things generally because she is a singer and was a singing teacher for a very long time she really drilled into me that you want to sing with your chest because if you do too much with your vocal cords your vocal cords actually kind of can't handle that and i did genuinely because judy holiday like started this part on broadway just think like, dear God, girl, you must be destroying your voice. Like, I just cannot. No, no, it's so in her head. It's not in her vocal cords at all. Like, she has no vocal fry because she's all the way up here, which I just did that and it lightened the stress on my vocal cords. It's when she does. It's when she does the guttural screams. It's when she goes low to yell at Broderick Crawford that I'm like doing that six nights a week. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Or eight shows is pretty difficult. (laughs) Right. That is, again, not an insult to the performance at all. But it is yet another thing where I thought this works better on stage because that sort of remove you have makes somebody who's really loud and annoying 
a little bit funnier on stage than they are on screen because on screen you're like wow that person's really loud and annoying and on stage you're like i'm really glad this person's 200 feet from me (laughs) because they are very clearly yelling (laughs) right yeah I will say that one thing that I really liked about this film, actually there are a number of things that I really liked about it, but as far as Pygmalion, My Fair Lady tropes go, that they didn't fix, quote unquote, her accent, Mm. I thought that was really nice. Like it was never, oh, let's work on your elocution or let's make you sound like Catherine Hepburn. It was, why don't you read some stuff? And then she just happens to really latch on to u.s government (laughs) as her subject of choice which works you know because they're in dc and also her boyfriend is trying to buy this congressman yeah but she sounds the same at the end of the movie even if the things that she is saying or the things that she is referencing are higher brow than they were before and i also really like the fact that william holden's character catches her listening to jazz right after listening to a beethoven record and she tries to hide it and feel embarrassed about it and he's like no it's okay to like a number of different things whereas when you have a henry higgins he's like ready to beat the love of rock and roll out of you or whatever i mean that's incredibly anachronistic but you know what i mean i think that scene is maybe the most effective single scene in the movie in a weird way Because I do a little bit think that it is extremely good that she isn't forced to be the quote-unquote right kind of girl by William Holden. But I do wish that it did a little bit better of a job of showing how she changed instead of just that she changed, you know? Mm. Because it doesn't need to be that she changes into the proper portrait of an aristocratic intellectual woman. Again, this is just, there are those brief flashes of her understanding something, but understanding it her way instead of understanding it William Holden's way. That I really enjoy. I really enjoy when he does his big overwritten, the yellowing of democracy and its manifesto piece that he has to explain to her and goes like, well, really what I'm, all I'm trying to say is that if you want to look at democracy, you have to look at the people. And if you look at the people in democracy right now, like democracy is in bad shape. And she just goes, well, why didn't you just say that? (laughs) Why did you write all this stuff? And I wish the movie kind of got into that a little bit more and spent a little bit more on the sort of advantages of her coming at being an intellectual from this weird angle. It flashes too occasionally, but then kind of comes back to the easier territory of this romantic comedy and this, I guess, love triangle, but like the easiest choice to make in the history of the world. It wouldn't have taken me any time. (laughs) I mean, I guess Broderick Crawford's character is wealthier. Right. But basically, she just needs to get enough education to realize it's actually all her money yeah that's true at this point because they've made her sign all of these papers that turn the money over to her yeah yeah oh and also by the end what she says is that you're not going to kill me because i'm going to give you your companies back but only one every year and you have to be good yeah which is very smart and i liked that a lot really it's that i really liked judy holiday's performance and i liked any moment this movie really gave her something to do 
but so much of this movie is her just carrying the weight of this entire film on her back. Yes. And just dragging it forward through sheer force of will. And being sort of wide-eyed and, oh yeah, gee, that's so interesting when William Holden wants to hold (laughs) forth about Thomas Paine, which, let's be real, even this movie doesn't think is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It is funny to me how explicit in the film it is that everyone on Earth would find this guy insufferable if he didn't look like William Holden. Usually we have the sort of different vibe where somehow nobody notices that fucking literally Cary Grant is standing right in front of them. Right. And this movie is like, yeah, 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 this guy's kind of boring. And if he was your history professor, you would be like, God, I can't take this shit anymore unless he looked like William Holden. (laughs) Yeah, and then you would be like, I can totally take this shit because I'm just not thinking about history when I look at him. Yeah. Uh, But she is, but also thinking about making out since she does try to make out with him a lot. Yeah. And he's like, let's maybe not do that, even though they kind of did early on. Yeah. Uh, Does he kiss her back in that first kiss? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I thought so. But then later he's like, no, 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 let's not kiss. So I I thought, well, maybe I remembered that wrong. But yeah, I mean, the romance is just extremely weird because it just keeps being roll a dice for how anybody is feeling about each other on any given scene. Right. There's just so many scenes where she's like, I decided I'm over you now because you just don't love me. And it's like. It's been two scenes since you guys made out and you went on like a date where he just talked about what American democracy means. That is a boring date. I will grant you. (laughs) But like, that's a weird jump for her to make. Look, there's a way in which that date is super romantic. I've seen, again, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, William Holden is no Jefferson Smith. I'll say that. Should we uh, talk about kind of the big meta thing about this movie, which is that Judy Holiday, in fact, won Best Actress in this year. Yes. I was thinking about this when I was watching the film and I got so excited talking about two good-looking people making out that it slipped my mind. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. (sighs) I am struggling to think of any other year we've had where I would be unhappy with that decision, but it is such a wild decision in this year. You know, I think part of it is that there's, I mean, I don't know who Eleanor Parker was or how good she was in Caged because it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. So, you know, we didn't watch it. But the other people in the category are obviously Anne Baxter, Betty Davis, both in All About Eve, and Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. And I gotta say... I love Betty Davis as Margot Channing. That is the easiest role of those four to play. Yeah. So I'm fine with Judy Holiday beating Betty Davis. I'm not sure I'm okay with her beating Ann Baxter or Gloria Swanson, but I'm also not sure that they deserved it over her. I mean, here's the thing. This is that, like, way long ago, I talked about a bit that I will never be able to find again from Twitter where somebody was like, we should give Best Actress to roles like Rosario Dawson in Clerks 2, where she has to pretend like she's in love with this completely unlovable man. Yeah, yeah. This is a much more difficult role in a lot of ways, certainly than Eve. I think, like, Norma Desmond is 
a bit of a special case and i think the one i'm gonna go to bat for like this being wild but like i totally get why especially with the like vote splitting of two nominees in all about eve this wins out against all about eve and i'm in a screen test of time sense like i don't think that is correct but i'm not like angry about it oh see i completely disagree with you about eve being an easier character to play because the level of control that you have to have to be outwardly so sweet and quiet and unassuming and yet project out of your eyes that you are a fucking psychopathic monster who is here to eat everyone's life is really difficult and is a particular style of acting that can only really be done on screen which again like these are film awards they're they're that those movie awards really I... but then gloria swanson you're, it has also so much control over norma desmond because that role as we talked about can spiral out of control so quickly in the hands of a lesser artist and i just but i think that's true also with Judy Holiday playing Billy Dawn? I'm very upset about this. <laughs> it really is a pick your poison situation. Because like when I say it's a harder part, I mean just in terms of what we were talking about that like th- it's a much worse role. Oh yeah. Billy Dawn is just a tremendously worse written, more thankless part than Eve. Eve is a high difficulty, high reward role. Yes. And I do think that there is something to that. But boy, Norma Desmond, as I was saying in that episode, like making a facial expression no human being has ever made as an acting choice and having that be a good acting choice is... And having it land and be moving. (laughs) Oh, I know. God, that's true. It's This is so hard. So I actually feel like we should quickly rate born yesterday and then move on to what i think is going to be a difficult choice for me as to whether or not the academy chose correctly i think that's probably fair i'm struggling for a six or a seven here and i think i'm leaning Uh, i think i'm leaning six but i it's up yeah yeah i'm mm, i'm gonna split the difference and say six and a half because i'm having the same problem yeah so let's go with a six and a half and a lot of that is down to, again, obviously Judy Holiday, but the costumes and the sets and the way that DC is used in this, I think are all very beautiful and really harken back to the glamour of the 30s in a weird way. Billy Dawn's outfits are gorgeous. They're not tacky. They're obviously very expensive. And that decision, I think, makes her character so much more interesting because it would be easy to make her look cheap. But that voice and that accent and the things that she says coming out of this incredibly glamorous character who looks like she stumbled out of a big white set (laughs) with Fred Astaire is such an interesting choice that I think is aesthetically exciting and made the movie easier for me to watch in the parts where the script was kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, I definitely like, I, I sent you a text that was mostly a joke 
that I was saying, like, this movie sucks. And then Judy Holiday came out wearing glasses. And I was like, this movie deserves best costuming and should have been much more influential in its time. <laughs> but there really is a turn around then where for the first like 20 minutes, it's largely just this one set of this hotel suite they're staying in. And it feels very play-like in that first 25 or so minutes. And it's just barely okay during that. Like, I would have given this movie a 4.5, and about the time she shows up in glasses, it jumps up to a 6.5. And that is largely about aesthetics. It is about how good she looks in glasses, but that's also when you start going out and doing all the sightseeing stuff in D.C. That is when you kind of get these different locations, and the cinematography locks in a lot more than it had been before. And I really do think that jumps up the quality of the film pretty significantly. You know, you're right. And that's a weird thing that demarcation <laughs> happens. Almost like the cinematographer put on his own glasses. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to On Cinema. <laughs> no, not actually almost like that. Probably. Yeah. Surely that's not. Never mind. I'm just going to. No. So, yeah, 6.5. Should you watch this movie? Yeah, uh, I, mm, I lean toward no, but I actually kind of like split decision. I don't think we've done that. Before. I don't think we've ever done that before. We've wildly disagreed on. We've split on grade and never on whether or not you should watch it. I kind of like split decision. Like, eh, yeah, I'm if you do. Wah, like I, I go back and forth myself. So I kind of think split decision I like for this. Oh, okay. I mean, I think it's worth watching because, you know, Judy Holiday is giving a hell of a performance. And I'm a sucker for gorgeous clothes. I think you're totally right about the gorgeous clothes. And I think Judy Holiday is great in this. But let's use this as a transition into talking about the awards for this year, because I kind of think that's where a lot of my maybe don't watch this is coming from. Yeah, at the same time, it feels wild to go. Now, it's the year 1950, and there's a movie you just gotta see because the female performance in it is so good. And that movie is born yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating to me about this year is that Harvey comes out in this year and is not nominated for Best Picture, but Jimmy Stewart is nominated for Best Actor in it, and... Josephine Hull is nominated and wins for Best Supporting Actress in it. And it's a super famous movie. <laughs> yeah. And King Solomon's Minds, I've never seen Harvey, but I have seen the play and it's funny and it's charming. Fucking throw out King Solomon's Minds and nominate Harvey instead. Come on. Yeah. The actual winner was all about Eve. And I think Here's the that's right. I, I like, here is the thing. This is one of those years that happens with the Academy a lot, I think. But I think that this is sort of the first year we've had enough good movies to really notice it. And the last time I really remember that happening was the Get Out year. But there was this year where the movies are tending to win about the right amount of awards that are about the right level of award for them to win 
but I think I would switch around exactly who won exactly what. Like, it is wild that All About Eve did not win Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. And I know that's because they split the vote, but that's still insane. I would maybe switch Best Motion Picture over to Sunset Boulevard, but in exchange, I would give All About Eve both Best Actress and Best Supporting. Uh, yeah, but see, I don't... I, I don't know that I think either of the Best Actress nominees in All About Eve are actually better than... Gloria Swanson but I don't know that they're not (laughs) yeah I think what's very telling is that All About Eve won best screenplay in the adapted from something else category and Sunset Boulevard won best screenplay in the original category which at the time were just called best screenplay and best story in screenplay yeah because damn they're really good and Born Yesterday I don't think really uh, comes anywhere close to it in terms of anything except for Judy Holiday's performance. Father of the Bride is fine. In kind of a normal year, I think we would be talking about like Father of the Bride versus Born Yesterday, which of these movies that have one good performance and then a lot of weird choices deserves to win. And in this year... Judy Holiday is doing a really good job. I think it is kind of unjust that she is overshadowed historically by these two other movies because she's doing a great job. But at the same time, yeah, that's just the luck of the draw. You're against two movies that defined female performances for the next 70 years. Playing a pretty outdated and cliched role. Yeah. I mean, we've made a lot of references. (laughs) Yeah. You know what else came out in this year is The Third Man. Like, 1950 was a great year for film. It's wild. I think I agree with you. It is super tough. Oh, God. It is so tough. Like, I just, I don't want to say a decision out loud on what the best picture should have been. I'm not mad at the Academy for choosing All About Eve. I'll say that. Like, totally respectable choice. Completely understandable I don't know if I agree with it because Sunset Boulevard is so good. And it is, again, a kind of pick your poison thing. I'm not sure either of them is straight better. We're always kind of joking with the objective ratings of all of these movies. But as much as you could possibly do that, I think they just kind of allocate their stat points differently. Yes, that's a perfect way of describing it. Sunset Boulevard is the bigger movie. It's more dramatic. It's less believable, but it is made believable by the performances in it. It's, I'm going to sound so pretentious, but like it's Dickensian in the way that that story unfolds and in its aesthetics and in its tone. And All About Eve is much more contemporary. It is much more modern. It is about kind of smaller fish to fry even though both of these at the end of the day are about an incredibly famous actress grappling with old age right or middle age really it's not even old age and staying relevant and believing that finding romantic love will help them get over this anxiety in the case of margot channing she gets over the anxiety and she's fine. In the case of Norma Desmond, it ramps up her 
delusions about a grand return and a whole new era of fame, of course, her love is also not real, <laughs> whereas Marcos is. But yeah, I, I honestly, I'm going to say the Academy chose correctly because they could have picked either one and it would not have been the wrong choice. But I'm not going to say that All About Eve is a better film than Sunset Boulevard because it's just not. Yeah. And I'm not going to say Sunset Boulevard is better than All About Eve. I am going to take it one step further and say I think I personally prefer Sunset Boulevard because of its larger than life nature. All About Eve is not cinema verite. This is not the real world. No. But it is slightly more grounded in reality than Sunset Boulevard. And I think I like that larger than life nature of Sunset Boulevard. That thing of no one on earth has ever been like Norma Tesmond. This is not how even someone who is that exaggerated of a character would act really. Yes. But... It is the exact right performance for Sunset Boulevard, and it is that ability of cinema to be bigger than life in that way in a movie about being bigger than life that I think edges it out for me, but the Academy chose correctly. There was not a wrong choice between those two. Interestingly enough, Best Film and Best Director at the Golden Globes went to Sunset Boulevard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But Best Screenplay went to All About Eve. In that year. And then at the Academy Awards, it ended up being all about E for film and director. And then both of them won the screenplay award in their respective categories. So I feel like all of Hollywood felt the same way. (laughs) Yeah. It is the first time since we've done this that I've genuinely felt bad for Academy voters. Yeah. Instead of like, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Or like, this was so obvious, what an easy choice. Yeah. Right. To vote Ann Baxter or Betty Davis and kind of on some level, no, either one deserves to win, but they're both giving such good performances, they're kind of screwed. Which, kind of a metaphor for some of the stuff in All About Eve, huh? (laughs) Boy, sure is. (laughs) (laughs) So basically what we're saying is, if you have not yet, on our recommendation, watched either Sunset Boulevard or All About Eve, do it. Yeah. And they make a good double feature. Yeah. And in fact, I will go and say, if you've already watched both of those two and you're looking for something to watch, you should watch Born Yesterday. However, if you did not take our recommendation yet and have not watched one of those two films, don't watch Born Yesterday. What the fuck is wrong with you? Watch (laughs) Sunset Boulevard and All About Eve. (laughs) Obviously. So next week, we are starting 1951 with A Place in the Sun, starring Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Actually, it's probably starring someone else, but I see Elizabeth Taylor and I'm like, starring Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) Montgomery Cliff is in it. And that's all I know. Yeah. Uh, once again, we've got two movies I'm really looking forward to. And once again, we're not really starting with one I'm super looking forward to. Though it'll be interesting to see Elizabeth Taylor in maybe better casting than we've seen her in. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, possibly not. But also possibly yes. I'm psyched for A Streetcar Named Desire and An American in Paris. Oh, have you not seen A Streetcar Named Desire? You know, I don't know if I've actually seen, like, the Marlon Brando. I don't know if I've ever seen the canonical A Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, man. 
I, uh, I'm not gonna, I, I will save all of my opinions for the episode. <laughs> it is, yeah, but, uh, no spoilers. <laughs> okay. But I have seen it. I've not seen an American in Paris, but I have the 12 inch vinyl soundtrack recording that I picked up at a yard sale when I was in college. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I mean, I know like that much about it just because it also had Rhapsody in Blue on it. That's what I was there for. Yeah. And then I don't really know anything about the other ones. Yeah. I think I have briefly heard of Quo Vadis as like the big 50s historical epics in that list. We're going to watch about, I don't know, 20 of those over the next 20 years. And it is not one of the top five, you know? Right, right. It's not Cleopatra. It's not Ten Commandments. It's not Spartacus. Yeah. And then Decision Before Dawn. Uh, I, uh, no idea. Yeah. Sounds like a zombie Nazi exploitation film. But we're not that lucky. Also based on the poster. Yeah. But yeah, no. I don't think any of those have ever been nominated for Best Picture. Though I did recently learn that Nazi zombie exploitation films, the first one came out in 1943, which I felt was super early. <laughs> yeah. Like the war wasn't even over. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, right? Yeah. I would have said a decade later. I would have said we were still like a year or two out from the first what if Nazis but undead movie. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, free podcast idea for somebody who wants to make a podcast and watch all of the Nazi zombie movies. <laughs> How satisfying to kill a Nazi zombie. It's like extra satisfying. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because you get to keep doing it. Yeah. The only problem with killing a Nazi is you can only do it the one time. But with Nazi zombies. Yeah. <laughs> It's a two-for-one deal. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, tune in next week when we will not be watching a Nazi zombie exploitation film, but hopefully we will be watching something of better quality since it was nominated for Best Picture. Though, as we know, that is not a guarantee. <laughs> no, but until then... This was a movie. It was a movie. Yeah. It was a hell of a performance, but it was a movie. It was a hell of a performance in a stage play that elevated it to a movie. Yeah. And that's impressive. But this was a year chock full of things we could call movies. <sighs> yeah. And by that, we mean 60%. 80%. 80%. Everything but one was a movie. Yeah. If we keep with that batting average, at the end of 1951, if we're keeping this batting average, I'm going to have to start blue skying a new catchphrase. I'm into that. <laughs> All right. But until then, this was a movie, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Come on, Paul. I'll send for my things. You little crump. You'll be sorry for this day. Just wait and see. Go ahead and go with him, but you don't stand a chance. If I ever seen anybody outsmart themselves, it's you. Goodbye, all. And you. Me? Yeah. You're fired. Sorry, Harry. I enjoyed working for you. Open up. All right, Harry. Do what I'm telling you!